Hey there, my name is Eric Massey. I have a Master of Divinity from Abilene Christian University. I've worked as a healthcare chaplain and as a young adult minister, and higher education was never something that was really emphasized when I was discerning my call to ministry. Honestly, I never thought I would go to seminary. Thankfully, and to my surprise, seminary was one of the best decisions that I ever made in my whole life. It textured and colored my faith in a way that I never thought was possible, and I cannot imagine my faith without it. Which has led me to wonder if there's a way to talk about how seminary isn't the scary, antiquated, or unnecessary thing we might think it to be. On this podcast, we'll introduce you to seminary professors talking about their areas of expertise to introduce you to topics that you might hear in seminary, but not necessarily every Sunday school class. So, whether you've been in ministry a long time or are just now starting to discern a call, or just like hearing about theology and history and higher education in the Christian world, this is probably the podcast for you. This is Seminary Isn't Scary. On this episode, we talked to Dr. Mark Hamilton, professor of Old Testament and the program director for the Master of Arts in Old Testament at Abilene Christian University's Graduate School of Theology. We talk about the Old Testament, what it is, how it relates to Christians, and also what it means to share this text with Judaism and how we might all benefit from being closer readers of the Old Testament. I hope you enjoy the episode. So, Dr. Hamilton, thank you for being here with us today. It's my pleasure. Glad to be here. Good to see you, Eric. Yeah, it's good to have you on. Well, uh, let's start with you telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I, I was uh, I was raised in the great state of Arkansas in the Ozarks with trees and water, and uh, but I've lived in Abilene for the last twenty years, and uh, with my family, uh, my wife and I have two adult kids, and who are doing reasonably well in life, I think. <laughs> and uh, we we enjoy each other's company. Good, I love that. Well, and you um, you work for the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University. Yes. And what do you do there? I teach Old Testament and Hebrew, and I, this is my twenty first year on the faculty. Biblical studies can be kind of a strange place, I think, to end up in life. So, what brought you to biblical studies? Well, I I, I I've been in involved in church my whole life, and was as were my parents before me. And I, when I was uh, about 11 years old, I uh, concluded that I should grow up and be a preacher. Uh, <laughs> today I would say I had a call to ministry, but that was not the language I would have used in those days, but then I was 11 years old. And so in high school, uh, and really starting even in junior high school, I hung around with preachers, I learned learned how to preach, and when I was in high school, I, I did a fair amount of that on weekends, Sunday nights, and at little churches in western Arkansas and eastern Oklahoma. When I went to college, um, I learned that there was this other thing called biblical studies, which uh, which preachers knew about and other people knew about, and could be done as an academic discipline as well as uh, something in the life of the congregation. It was a both-and for me, and always has been a both-and. But it was in, in college where I really learned what the possibilities were. And so that's that's the path I followed. And you ended up doing, uh, focusing on Old Testament. You teach Old Testament now. Yes. And how, was there something that drew you to Old Testament studies in particular? Or did that just kind of end up being where you landed? Well, I, I like I like New Testament too. I'm all for the New Testament. <laughs> uh, and I'm and for all the other theological disciplines as well. I, I think they're all important and valuable and beautiful, but uh, but you can't do everything. And for me, somewhere in college, I, I don't know if I can put a finger on exactly when and where. I concluded that was that was the direction for me. That there were lots of things to learn about and teach, and there was a beauty in those texts that was very powerful. And um, I wanted to know more about them, not to the exclusion of other things, but just you have to you have to pitch your tent somewhere. So you you land in the places that 
that bring you delight. I think there's something very subjective about it because, you know, there are other possibilities that are equally beautiful and wonderful. It sounds like it might be kind of a silly question, but I think it's it's worth kind of laying the groundwork for our conversation. When we say Old Testament, what are we what are we talking about? Well, uh, so there are a lot of layers to that question, yeah, but we're talking about the texts that came to us from ancient Israel. So most Christians have received most of our Bible from Judaism, or we sh- early Christianity shared with formational Judaism a set of texts that that had a life in the synagogue and the church and shaped those communities and spoke to them with the voice of God. And so we, we share those texts. You know, Christians have debated over the centuries as to exactly what the boundaries of that list are, but I think we agree. We agree on most of them, and that's what we're, we, we like to call the Old Testament. Some, sometimes uh, people also use the phrase Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Or if you're in Jewish circles, you, you use the phrase Tanakh, which is the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. And in one sense, those terms all mean the same thing. But in another sense, they're slightly different because they, they emphasize what these texts are connecting to. In other words, they don't just exist by themselves. If, if you call it Tanakh, that's because you're reading it alongside the Talmud and Jewish oral law. If you call it the Old Testament, that's because you're reading it alongside the New Testament, uh, the stories of the early church and, of course, of Jesus. If you call it Hebrew Bible, that means you're trying to, you're trying to recognize that at least two different groups use these same texts and understand them somewhat differently because they make different connections to other things. So I think with Old Testament, I am saying that this is a text that the Church shares, but it is also the Church's text, and it's in, in relationship with or in conversation with the New Testament and the whole history of the Church. Yeah. Well, and, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about, since these, these texts are shared texts, um, and we are, we're sort of using them in connection to different things. How did we get to the collection of texts that we have now? I imagine there's a, there's a lot to go into there, but sort of the maybe highlights or, or cliff note version of, of what, what brought the texts that we call the Old Testament. How did we get this collection of texts as it stands? Well, there's a long answer and a short answer, so I'll, I'll give you the short <laughs> answer. We, 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 because the long answer is there are some things we don't know. Mm. But the, uh, the short answer is that these are the texts that, are, that were used in, in Jewish synagogues that were read uh, in worship and were interpreted and uh, applied to life. Uh, and, and they predate the synagogue, of course. We don't know exactly when people started having synagogues, let's say somewhere around 200 B.C., maybe a little earlier or a little later. But the, these texts, of course, are older, and they were, we know they were in use in the temple in Jerusalem and in the Samaritan temple at Mount Gerizim. Uh, uh, at least the, the five books of Moses were in use in both of those temples uh, well before 200 B.C. So they, the, these are the texts that Jewish teachers reverted to and heard uh, they're the texts that Jesus would have heard read in synagogue uh, and would have understood to be prophetic texts speaking by people who are hearing the Word of God. So they have the authority of God behind them. Beyond that, we can have a long conversation, I think, <laughs> we should start with that, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's a good place to start. Um, especially, I notice, as we go farther and farther back, it, at least it feels like to me that it can be harder the older something is to to glean a clear picture of exactly where it's coming from and, and what it's doing. Right. We do, we do, our evidence is just incomplete. So if you're just being a strict historian and being very careful, thinking about what do we know and how do we know it, then then we have to be careful because we there's some certain things we don't know. Yeah, and I and I think that brings me to my next question, which has to revolve around uh, as a Christian and and how we as Christians relate to this text. I know for me at least, 
I didn't have a whole lot of education in my connection to these texts as a Christian, as a sort of a shared text with Judaism. And so I'm curious about, from the perspective, or at least for people who who maybe don't know a ton about our connections to any sort of Jewish heritage that we have, how can we use it in such a way that gets so divorced from its heritage? Because I know, how do we get to a place where I, as a Christian, can be a Christian and read the Old Testament and have almost no understanding or no connection to the faith that the Old Testament was conceived in? Well, again, there's the long answer and the short answer. <laughs> I, uh, I think... A lot of Christians hear these texts primarily in two or three different ways. We hear the stories when we're children, which is a little strange when you reread them and you think, well, this doesn't sound like a children's story to me. (laughs) Or we hear them used liturgically, so the Psalms are put to music. Or maybe we hear the book of Proverbs as sound advice. Not much different from poor Richard's almanac, just kind of common sense advice. But we don't often hear, at least in many churches, most of the rest of the Bible. When was the last time people really studied the prophets carefully? Uh, Some people do. Uh, Some people study them as a blueprint for things going on today, which I would say is a misuse of them. But, But largely there's a silence in the church, a silence about the Bible, Probably also a silence about the New Testament as well. The Bible's become kind of an advice book for people who just kind of want to have a slightly better life. And that's not really what the Bible is. The Bible challenges us and invites us into the, the kingdom of God. And so it, it compels us to re-examine almost everything we think. And that that's scary. And so the Church, I think, spends a lot of its energy trying to prevent that from happening. Not just for the Old Testament. The Old Testament has this this other challenge, which is that Jews and Christians have a very long and complicated history uh, in which Christians have constantly, repeatedly tried to distance themselves from Jews. I, mean, I know it goes the other way, but the power structure is almost always gone with Christians having most of the power. You know, there weren't medieval massacres of Christians by Jews. It was always the other way around. Mm-hmm. So there is this long history of almost denying our Jewish connections, denying the, the most obvious fact of all, which was that Jesus was an observant Jew, that he was the heir of Israel, that he was practicing Jew, he made sacrifices, he kept kosher laws, and on and on. And yet we just sort of try to baptize him. And I, so I think that's an, another long discussion, but one mm. that we, we would do well to, to have, I would say. Yeah. Well, and this and this kind of brings us to I think the 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 main topic I wanted to talk to you about today is how how we interpret the Old Testament and sort of examining those those methods of interpretation, which which brings us to the the fancy word of today, which is hermeneutic. Would you be able to give us a sort of working definition of of hermeneutic? Yeah. Well, I think hermeneutics is a kind of a, a systematic approach to how we think about the meaning of a text, and particularly the contemporary meaning of the text. I, I can read an ancient text, whether it's the Bible or a Mesopotamian text or an Egyptian text or whatever, and I can ask the question, what, what would this text mean to the original readers, as best I can tell, as best I can reconstruct? And I can get a long way down that road. I can understand through study of language and sometimes a study of the the material culture around this text, what that might have meant to those people. But when I ask the question, so what does it mean now? What does it mean to the a community of people reading it? Then I'm in a different kind of world because I'm, I'm not, I'm, uh, that means I have to talk about us, who, who are we as readers, and what is this text saying, and how do those two poles, the text and the reader, how do they connect to each other? And that, that becomes more more difficult in some ways, and also much more interesting and rewarding and debatable. I mean, different people have different approaches to this whole question. For me, uh, I think it's important to read with a sort of a hermeneutics of sympathy. Not that I 
I'm simply blindly accepting everything I'm told, but then I'm saying, I think there's probably something here that I need to hear. It's very precious and important. And it probably doesn't lie on the surface. I probably have to do some work. I need to examine myself. And Christians have usually thought we should read the Bible in the context of prayer and devotion. So with a, so we're reading with a spirit of awe. Uh, also, that I need to examine the text carefully. Uh, I think the challenge with that today is not sort of the technical challenges of, you know, how do I parse this sentence or what does this word mean or whatever. The, the, the hardest thing today, I think, is just to pay attention because we're so distracted and we want everything instantly. We want it as pre-digested as possible. And this, the Bible doesn't really lend itself to that very well. If you go at it that way, you, you usually end up with the wrong answer. Hmm. No, I think there's something important about that. And I also appreciate, like, I think it's very obvious in at least the time that I have spent with you, but also I think just even over the last few minutes that this is this is a discipline that you you care about more than just uh, something as an intellectual pursuit. Like, you, you talk about this these texts as something that, that are powerful and beautiful and really important to you. And there's a sort of, like, a sort of tenderness in that that I really appreciate. And I, and I, I find it interesting when I talk to you about the Old Testament. I, I'm always sort of pairing you with voices from my, my younger years that talk about the, the Old Testament being very difficult to read because God seems very angry and vengeful. And people who have made the sort of juxtaposing images of the New Testament God in, in Jesus Christ and the Old Testament God and in all of his various activity and, and kind of presenting this, this dichotomy that when I talk to you, I really don't feel. And so I'm really, I'm very curious from your perspective, what do you, you talk about these texts as, as things that intertwine with the New Testament, but also things that can sort of stand on their own and I, I would love to hear a little bit about what you think the Old Testament has to offer Christians, uh, just sort of standing on its own, that we we can learn from it if we learn to be a little bit more careful in our reading. Yeah, well, I, I would just say that our, just first of all, the distinction that lots of people make between the, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is a figment of our imagination. But we only get there by not reading either one of them very carefully. <laughs> and, I, you know, in the New Testament, there there are just as many blunt, pointed, hard-nosed things as there are in the Old Testament, you know, page for page. Uh, and so Jesus was not Santa Claus, right? <laughs> he, was, uh, he was not a warm, cuddly guy, and uh, and that's why they killed him. If he'd been a warm, cuddly guy, they wouldn't have killed him. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is, um, just if you read the, the Old Testament, we we ought to ask, why why is God angry in these texts? Sure, there's a lot of stuff about the the wrath of God, uh, but why is is it because of some hurt feelings because people didn't say enough nice things about him, or is it because of sort of the gross injustices of the world. And obviously it's the latter. I mean, there's a sense of righteous indignation as human behavior. And so that, that I think we, I think that's important for Christians to hear because we're so easily, we, we, we so easily like to be part of the power structure, you know, and any critique of the power structure agitates us because we've invested in defending it. And the Old Testament reminds us not to do that. It's not our place to do that. I think the New Testament does as well. I mean, if you read Jesus's statements, it's pretty hard to come away with a sense that we should be comfortable in this world. Uh, but I think I think the Old Testament offers us critique of the way powerful people do things, and the rest of us get co-opted into those things. I think it. But, but it's a lot more than that. I think it's, it offers us the language for lament and celebration. So it's no wonder that Christians have put the Psalms to music. 
from the very beginning of our life as a, as a community. Um, the, the Old Testament offers us um, language for imagining better, a better world, and so it's not an accident that the New Testament sort of cribs all that language, right? <laughs> you read the book of Revelation, for example, and you think, well, this is all Ezekiel and Daniel and Genesis. I mean, it's it's all cribbed from somewhere else in the Old Testament, re, reconfigured. So, um, I mean, that's a place to start. I think it also offers a story, and it reminds us that the story of redemption is a story about flawed people, messy, messy people, uh, which is why, in a way, I think it's uh, unfortunate that we just tell these stories to children, uh, because the people in them are not really the sort of people children can easily make sense of. So I I think that's a place, those are the starting points. There's a lot more to say, but that's a place to start. Yeah, well, and and actually, this is... Maybe a little bit of a tangent, but I am actually curious since since you've brought it up a couple times now. Um, there's pretty obvious evidence to me that we should be reading the Old Testament more as adults than we do. Um, but I'm also curious about we do spend a weird amount of time teaching children stories of the Old Testament. And I'm curious mm-hmm. if there would be uh, – either A, better texts that you would recommend being taught to children, um, but also B, some crucial stories of the Old Testament that you think we should retell as adults more often. Well, I'll start with B. I think I think <laughs> the, the, uh, more often, yeah, probably lots of them. I, you know, the, the core stories of the Old Testament are about exodus and exile. I mean, at the risk of being cheesy and using two words starting with the letter E, I... <laughs> You know, I, I think I think that those are the core stories: Exodus and exile. And how did we, how did we get to Exodus, and how did we get to exile? And so I think the stories that relate to those two things are things we should think a lot more about. Um, all of which are explorations of divine, divine justice on the one hand, and divine mercy on the other. So that'd be a place to start. But your first question. I think, to me, for children, the first thing we need to make sure is they they hear the stories of the Gospels. Mm. And I, I think the first question is, who do you think Jesus is? Because as a Christian, I'm, I'm a Christian because of who I think Jesus is. Um, and so that, that there is first place. But then the second thing is, to decide which stories to teach children, we need to ask ourselves about what are the what are the moral and spiritual dimensions of the text we're reading. You know, so um, I don't think you have to be prudish with children. I don't think most children are that prudish, but you probably don't want to say to a five a sensitive five year old, and yes, everybody on the whole planet drowned. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm not sure that makes much sense as a place to start. Uh, but you can tell the story of people of faith and their response to faith, and you can also tell the story of, you know, sometimes they failed. But it does need to be age-appropriate. And that, of course, is debatable, I, I suppose. I think, the, the to me, the bigger point is not so much what do you tell, as how do you tell. You You want to make sure that you tell it to older kids so they can realize this is not the story I learned when I was six is is the six year old version of the story. It's not the actual story in the text. Mm. So maybe youth ministry is the critical point here, mm. where you we sort of usher people into adulthood by helping them think more deeply about things. That sort of rings true to me. I think, um, especially with with the flood narrative. But but this does bring me to um, my next question, which is we we do exist it, as Christians with uh, a relationship with with the Old Testament uh, in in sort of conjunction with the the New Testament writings. And I'm curious from your perspective, what how should our relationship with the Old Testament and and Judaism uh, influence how we read? 
the New Testament? How? Because I think I've heard a lot about how the New Testament should affect our reading of the Old Testament, and we start seeing Jesus in stories that that they maybe were not thinking about Jesus in particular. But I'm I'm really curious to hear from you what sort of texts from the Old Testament would make an impact on how we read the the Christian writings, the New Testament. Well, yeah, just in a very general way, I would say we need, we need to recognize that all of the early Christians were Jews, right? All mm. the all the first Christians were Jews, and they all now not all Jews were the same, and the Judaism that evolved uh, through the rabbinic periods. Uh, you know the Tanaitic period of the um, third, second, third, fourth century is different from the Judaisms of the first century. You know, so there's there's more than one way of being Jewish in the time of Jesus, <laughs> and so I, I, I note that. But I also note that there were also points of commonality. You know that if you if you didn't believe in the one God, you you were kind of out of the community, right? Mm. And circumcision was an important marker, and 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 there are other things to talk about. So, uh, so the early Christians um, were Jews, and 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 all the questions that they worked through theologically had Jewish ties. You know, who is the Messiah? That's a Jewish question, right? And how do I pray? That's that's a Jewish question. So there's this. There's very much this Jewish um, substrate through the New Testament. I mean, you think about the Our Father. Is there anything in that prayer that an observant Jew, either in the first century or the 21st century, could not pray? And the answer, I think, is no, because it's very much a Jewish prayer. So the point is that even very central things in Christianity... Uh, are rooted in Judaism. I mean, the, the the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, is tied to the Passover meal. It's not the same thing, obviously, but it has its roots there at some level. And so, not to understand that, to think that somehow we just started from scratch, is is really a misunderstanding. Uh, at the same time, the early Christians transformed certain things, right? They took on their own directions. They weren't, at some point, the the Jesus followers became a separate group than Jews. It was uh, separated from the synagogues, and or the synagogues separated from them, probably some of both, actually. So they did become the separate groups, but, but they have lots and lots in common, and they worship the same God. So... Or rather, they have the same understanding of who the God that they worship is. I, I think Christians have to understand that that, that this that if you if you went through the New Testament like our like Marcion did, or like some of the Nazis did, and you take out all the Old Testament references, you have very little left. And I'm not suggesting that Marcion was a Nazi, but I, I do think, uh, but. He was, but the, 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 we we do have to remember that the the Christian tendency to take the Jewishness out of the New Testament has some very bad puts us in some very bad company. Mm. What would you kind of work with the folks who would kind of say something like Jesus sort of cut from Judaism, or it was clear that the the Jews weren't doing it right, so Jesus changed things. I've kind of heard variations of this narrative. Uh, in in sort of different forms and different questions, but I think it all it all sort of comes down to an argument about uh, the New Testament is a rewriting of things or a, a a making of of mistakes that the Jews made to do to do better. How does that narrative sort of fit into what we're talking about? Well, Jesus explicitly denied that he'd come to abolish the law. Mm. So if you suggest that, if somebody suggests that he's trying to straighten out things like that, then they put themselves in opposition to what he explicitly said. And again, put themselves in very bad company. Mm. <laughs> uh, what would I say to somebody and what would I say about somebody might be slightly different things, because <laughs> uh, that's pretty blunt. But I would just say that's just quite wrong. 
Yes, Jesus and the early Christians, um, and I know we there's a long debate of exactly what's the relationship between Jesus and the early Christians, but I understand that debate. But Jesus and the early Christians believed that they were offering the correct interpretation of the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible, or Tanakh, or whatever you want to call it, and therefore that other people's interpretations were at least partly wrong. But they were still in agreement on to what text they were trying to interpret, and they they did not break from that. They did not break from their past. They they may have reinterpreted it, but that's a different sort of thing. I mean, for example, I'm take a lot of examples. I mean, the early Christians went to the temple to pray. Right? They didn't break from the temple. Mm. Uh, Paul carried out a vow in the temple. What does that mean? It must mean that he engaged in sacrifice. I mean, that's what, what you do when you carry out a vow. So they did not, they did not break from Judaism entirely, and, and, and because in their time there was more than one way of being Jewish, and theirs was, theirs was a new way of being Jewish. And so the break is later than the, the, first, the first church. And in fact, again, all the all the theological issues in the New Testament are framed by the Old Testament. I mean, find me one that's not. <laughs> uh, they're all framed by it. Yes, it takes it in a new direction, but it's this is the thing we're taking in the new direction. Mm. I can put it that way. I think that helps me put things in, in my head a little bit. Uh, more orderly. So to switch topics on you a little bit, you most recently were wrote a book on immigration and exile. Mm-hmm. What were the texts from the Old Testament that you were you were kind of working with most heavily when you were writing that? Well, the textbook it's it's a little book, and so I there were there are a lot of things that one could say about any of the texts I looked at, but I tried to uh, give you a pretty broad splash of them. Uh, so I have, I have texts from Exodus about how, about how to interact with a stranger. Um, I have texts from Genesis. You know, Gen- Genesis is really a book about, about migrants. All the, all the major characters are migrants, and the book deals with the, uh, the difficulties of being a migrant in a world that's not really your friend. And then you just sort of work your way through the Bible. I mean, whenever whenever words like uh, migrant or gare is the Hebrew word show up, you, you find uh, text telling the settled people to be hospitable. And you have text commending hospitality. And you have this wonderful text in the New Testament, the book of 13th chapter, the book of Hebrews, that talks about... Uh, Remember to show hospitality, uh, uh, or the old translations say to entertain strangers, uh, which means to take care of the migrant, uh, because some have taken care of migrants who turned out to be angels, you know, which is an, an obvious allusion to the story of Abraham and Sarah taking care of the three people who came to visit them. So, uh, you know, once you start digging into the biblical discussion of this, it's you find it's actually all over the place. So I tried to give a little bit of a lot of things in the book. You've been sort of emboldened to write this text, uh, and, I'm, and I'm curious, what, how do you believe this became so important to those who profess Christianity, or and like especially how it became so important to you? Well, those are maybe you know, two different questions. I mean, first of all, it is deeply rooted in the Bible. Mm. You know, the, the oldest legal collection in the Bible is uh, Exodus 21 to 23, the, the so-called covenant code, and it, it twice tells Israelites to take care of the migrants because you were migrants in the land of Egypt, right? So there's something, uh, and you know the life of the migrant, it says. So there's something about the core identity of the Israelite community is people who've been freed from slavery uh, that should lead them to care for other people who are vulnerable because they're outsiders. So just the basic core of empathy 
And it's, there's a warning in these texts. I mean, God says to them, if, uh, if they pray to me against you, then I will kill you, <laughs> which, is a, which is very blunt, very direct, pretty hard to misunderstand, and actually quite rare. I mean, the, 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 the Old Testament laws almost never say something like that, contrary to popular opinion. Mm. They just simply don't. And and so to say it so bluntly is very rare um, and striking. And, and, and the care of the migrant is equated with the care of widows and orphans. So it's at that level of basic human decency that we're that we're trying the texts are operating with, and uh, so I think there's something very fundamental at stake in Christian morality, and and you know Jesus and his the the the, the, the story of the great the last judgment in Matthew 25. Uh, says, I was a stranger and you took me in, which was the, uh, you know, this is the same, in Hebrew, this is the same word. Mm-hmm. So I, I was somebody, I was a migrant and you took me in, uh, and identifies the act of taking in the migrant as something that gets you into the heavenly kingdom. And the act of not taking care of the migrant is something that sends you to the other place. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I, again, it's very direct. So, so whatever you think about the literalness of any of those texts, it there is something fundamental to Christian identity here, and there always has been. I mean, the the, the, uh, the moral practice of the church has has very frequently revolved around the care of the migrant whether it's uh, taking care of pilgrims on pilgrimage routes or uh, entertaining visiting visitors to a community or whatever. I mean, this is fundamental to who we've been. But now it's been politicized and uh, used as... Um, we've sort of... Some people have uh, used the reality of widespread migration as a political weapon to advance their own power by demonizing or animalizing other human beings. And uh, and some of the people doing that profess to be Christians, but I, I think we have a responsibility to say that they're not hmm. really Christians. They're, they're something else. So I, I, so I think we have a responsibility to do things like this. Hmm. You know, the Bible's teaching is a lot less ambiguous than people seem to think on a topic like this. It's very ambiguous about some things that people seem very clear about and very clear about some things that people seem ambiguous about. So that's why I wrote the book. Yeah. Anyway. No, and I appreciate that that seems to come out of a place of sort of that careful reading that you're talking about, this sort of care and reverence for the text that causes you to revisit and dig deeper and kind of, as you said, I imagine that the things that are maybe a little more blunt or a little bit more clear become even more so the more time and care you spend with the text. So I'm curious what you would, how, how do we, how do we get better at this? How do, if we're ministers and we've maybe grown up in traditions or been taught in traditions or or just spend a lot of time with folks who who maybe don't do a lot of this careful reading of of the te- the text how do we how do we learn to listen to it anew how do we how do we learn to refresh some of those thoughts well i i i i sometimes have a little exercise i try with students and I'll, I'll say, let's let's read this text and tell me, tell me twenty five things about this text. And you know, the first half dozen are pretty obvious and superficial. And then you you start getting in the mid teens, and then something, some things start to get a lot more interesting. And then you get in the twenties, things get more interesting. And then I, when we get to twenty five, I say, well, now give me twenty five more. <laughs> And when you when you do that, 
and it's it's kind of it's a little bit corny, but but you know we we're in an extremely distracted society, so to get us to focus requires some corny efforts <laughs> like this. And I, and I think once you start doing that, once you've forced yourself to notice 30 things and 40 things and 50 things, then you start, then you're finally starting to get rid of the background noise. And you're starting to notice things that pop out that are, you know, you start to notice things that are really there. You start to notice not just little bitty details, but the larger pieces, the things that were extremely important. And once you realize them, you think are obvious, but they weren't obvious because they were hidden under all the background noise. I, I used to say, try to read the Bible while standing on your head. <laughs> and what, what, what I mean by that is, or what I meant by that in the old days when I used to say that was, uh, read the Bible as though you're a character in the story, or if it's not a story, as though you're the person hearing this text and you don't know where it's going to go. I mean, the the the, peop- the characters in the story don't know how the story goes, and so Abraham and Sarah don't know when they're going to have a baby. They don't even know if they're going to have a baby. They're, they've they've jumped out in faith, hoping. You know, or uh, the disciples on Saturday night after Good Friday don't know what's going to happen the next day. So that's those are two thoughts. I've, I'll give you one more thought. I, I've been reading uh, Barton Stone. Barton Stone was an early 19th century leader that formed the, the group of which I'm part, ultimately, and uh, Churches of Christ and some other groups. And he talks about... He he was a preacher, and he said, "I you know I was on the one hand I was telling people they were totally depraved and they couldn't be saved unless God wills it, and then I would end the sermon by calling them to fall onto into the hands of the mercy of God, and I couldn't understand, and I realized how these two things flatly contradict each other. <laughs> you know, they're obviously it can't be both; it's not possible. And so he says, I I went." He, he finally just he went to the Bible, and he read the text of uh, uh, the end, end of John 20. Many of the signs truly did Jesus, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And that just opened the door to him. Said, you know, you heard the word, you believe, you can have life. So the whole Calvinist stuff of total depravity sort of fell fell away for him, hmm. uh, and uh, I think rightly so. But you know, other Christians <laughs> might disagree with that, but I think rightly so. And uh, but there's that sense that there's uh, you know um, if I keep reading, I might find some relief here. I think that's important that there 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 might be a word of deliverance here. If I press ahead, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed or sort of taken aback by that that last point because I do think there is a temptation in reading the text that when it is getting really difficult or or even boring or monotonous in our lives, like I feel, I feel like there's a temptation to to drop it and to look for something new, and that might have a lot to do with uh, the sort of the nature of how we've been. Uh, cultured, I guess uh, you you've talked about as being a distracted society, and I think I I, I definitely agree with that. Um, but I also, I mean, well, we can't be the only well, ones pe- who have struggled with that. <laughs> no, it's a modern, it's a mo- it's it's a phenomenon of the technological revolution we're part of. You know, and there are people making tens of billions of dollars mm. on our distractions. Mm. You know, built whole industries on our distractions. So it's not an accident. There are people working hard to make sure we're distracted, <laughs> so uh, and making a lot of money at it. So I, I just think um, we should not be unaware of that. Well, you know, I mean, the the internet just threw that threw that into overdrive. Mm-hmm. It's been around, but it predates the internet. But that ratcheted it up yeah. exponentially. Well, and I think the 
there's something really oddly empowering or encouraging about the idea that like if we continue to read if we continue to turn to this thing to have to have faith to trust that there's something important here that there can be um relief i think that i find i often find uh as i'm as i'm talking to folks that um we don't usually i think a lot of us struggle to find uh relief in the text at times um and i and i really Mm -hmm. like the idea that if if we're careful with it if we're if we're caring with it if we're diligent with it that there there can be relief that there can be something life-giving that Mm -hmm. comes that comes out of that kind of reading i think that's right (laughs) i think that's right i mean you know you can careful clinical analysis uh, can be deadening, but it doesn't have to be. And superficial reading can be can give you some life, but usually it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it. Um, I, I don't know. I, I I think I understand why we pit. Um, kind of careful exegesis against devotional reading as though those are somehow mutually exclusive. I don't, I don't think they have to be. I think they they don't have to be if you keep at it. Mm. That's... But, I, but, it but it does take time. I mean, I, I, you can't... That doesn't come in the first few weeks or months. I don't think it takes time. Yeah, and and I think even that is an encouraging thought that that it can take some time, but it it's worth it. Um, yeah. Dr. Hamilton, thank you so much for joining. For my last question, I wanted to ask you, uh, do you think seminary is scary? For the faculty or the student? <laughs> oh, I, I, I think initially I'm thinking about from the student's perspective, but I would also love to hear your thoughts <laughs> no, about from joking. the faculty's perspective. No, I'm, I'm just, I'm being a smart like. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure, it's scary. I mean, anytime you enter into a world that you're not used to, that's scary. And to be more specific, when I, when you come to seminary, you think, okay, I'm here for one of several reasons, or maybe maybe all of these reasons. Some people come for vocational reasons. I'm I'm going to be a minister of some sort, and and I know that I need this training to do it. Some people come thinking, I, I just, I just curious about theology or some one of the theological disciplines, and I, I want to know a lot more about that. Some people come because trying to sort out my faith, um, and some people come for any combination of those reasons, and maybe there are other reasons. But I, I think uh, it's important to know why I'm here, and if it's more than one reason, that's fine. It's not a wrong answer. Just you know, why am I here? But um, the 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 reasons offer different sources of frightfulness, right? I mean, and to me, uh, to me, maybe one of the most frightening things is the the vocational side. Will I, if I learn all these skills, will that somehow dampen the faith that I have? And I think maybe maybe that's what's behind your question. If I learn careful exegesis, is that going to mash up my faith or whatever? I, I, think, I think that the importance of seminary is it gives you a place to work through the issues with people who have already worked through them, uh, or, or, or who are at least further down the road in working through them. And uh, it gives you a chance to sort of process the questions. And if, and if I think to myself, I'm doing this I'm doing it not just for myself, but I'm doing it for the rest of the church. Uh, I think that's really valuable. And I'll just give one more sentence. I know that some of my undergrad students have told me they they grew up in churches where if you ask any hard questions, you were told, don't don't ask that question, just have faith. And I I think that's an extremely poor response. Basically, it's saying the church is a place where we don't think. 
And I think that's that's absolutely lethal. I, I think that kind of ministry creates more unbelievers than anything else in the whole world. Mm. So I think seminary education should help you help people who have real questions work through them because you've worked through them. Or at least you're trying to. You have some resources for working through them. And I, I think we owe our fellow Christians uh, that kind of work. I don't, I don't think this is some luxury. I think, I think we owe it to the church to, to do this as well as we can so we can help other people. So that's my long-winded answer to that good question. I think it was um, lovely. Yeah, I super appreciate that. Um, well, Dr. Hamilton, thank you so much for taking some time today to talk with us. Thank you so much, Dr. Thanks, Hamilton. Sir. Thank you. Take have care. A, have Thanks. a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. Yep. Let's address the elephant in the room. The Old Testament is uncomfortable for some of us. It's a place where we learn about an angry God, legalistic rules, and confusing prophecies. It can sound exclusivist, archaic, and to top it all off, there's just no Jesus. Sometimes, if we're honest, if we're trying to promote the spiritual health of someone, we mostly turn them to the New Testament, maybe the Psalms. But we may not be spending very much time reflecting on the fact that these are the root texts of our faith, that these are the texts that Jesus read that these are the texts that early Christians were Christians with. If we want to know Jesus, we should care about the Old Testament. And if we're careful readers, we can start to realize that our faith is incomplete without it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seminary Isn't Scary. Seminary Isn't Scary is a creation of the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University. Our producer is Zane Goggins, and a special thanks to KACU for providing all of the studio space and the wonderful equipment we use. I'm Eric Massey. Thanks for listening.